0: This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by Cards for Mindfulness. Cards for Mindfulness is a beautifully designed, limited edition set of 54 cards that contain innovative techniques and helpful reminders to bring us back into the here and now. Cards for Mindfulness is made by our friends at Mindfulness Everywhere, the same people behind Budify. You can visit kickstarter.com or cardsformindfulness.com To receive your set and find out more, give yourself the perfect present with cards for mindfulness. Buddhist Geeks Exploring the Convergence of Buddhism, Technology, and Culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash let's Let's hear from the citizens of the temporary Buddhist Geeks city. <laughs> um, we'll um, pass the mic and take some questions and comments. And we'll start with Kendra.
1: Hi, I'm Kendra. Do you think that you... We're kind of getting into this about uh, sort of the potential for... Human biological evolution through these technologies. So, Nima, even yeah. with your um, breathing sensing device, like, could there be potential that you know, f- first we start with the technology helping aid uh, our awareness of it, but then it becomes something that we have control of without it, or uh, similarly with the uh, the emotive device, and and even with psilocybin and other technologies where these tools will actually aid us in reaching a higher level of either biological evolution or even conscious evolution
2: Yes that's a yes <laughs> that's, uh, yes uh, I'll, give, I'll
3: give a more multi-word answer um, so uh, yes um, I, uh, I think all of that's. All of that's in the cards, and all of that's possible. And it's a question of what we optimize for. Um, I think that we have already seen technology affecting us in a, from a biological perspective. I think we'll see it from a genetic perspective, from a physiological, across the board. Anything that can be deeply understood, measured, quantified can be changed. And so it's a question of what do we prioritize and why? And I think if you look in the space, what people are prioritizing for, To a large extent, people want to use these technologies in one form or another to satisfy some kind of materialistic desire. Pretty much what almost all this stuff is for, to work better, more efficiently, to make more friends, to get richer, to whatever it is. But I think that there's a more profound use for the technology. um, And I think that that's the same thing that contemplative traditions point towards. And I think technology can point in the same direction. In order to achieve that goal, some sort of biological change is helpful, so be it. If in order to achieve that goal, some kind of neurological change is helpful, so be it. Um, but it's a, I think the important question is what are you actually optimizing for?
2: And I think one of the, one of the, the big transitions that we're seeing is an understanding of minds in a way that was not previously possible. I saw this great talk from an individual with ADHD and he was explaining, I'm a researcher, I'm a snowboarder, I'm a rock climber, and he just goes off on his whole stream of consciousness and it was a matter of social acceptance for him. I think that these technologies are going to allow us to be able to understand things like autism and ADHD and these things that previously we saw as out of the norm as, a, as a way for us to embrace that about each other and the uniqueness about each human being.
0: And uh, Jacob, I, I meant to ask too, you know, you're working really closely in the EEG field. I think one question that comes up, because this is one of the kind of primary contemplative technology hardwares, Absolutely. you know, what, what what is this stuff actually capable of even right now? That's a
2: really good question. EEG research, um, my background was in functional magnetic resonance imaging before, which is very high resolution. EEG has a very high temporal accuracy, meaning it's very accurate within the, a time Space linearly, and with something like fMRI, you have about a minute wait time before you're able to look at the oxygenation of the blood levels. Um, so high resolution on one end, high temporal accuracy on the other. Now, given a wonderfully large data set, there's practically no limit to what I can do with it. For me, right? the more the more people that participate in allowing us access to be able to understand the brain. And I believe that there's there's a big challenge for us as we move forward in the technology is openness and um, informed consent so that people understand that they're opting in, that, that, that all the privacy concerns and all of those issues, they need to be addressed and we need to have an open discourse about it. And with that, getting access to that information, we have the ability now to be able to really crawl through that that data in a way that just was never before possible. For instance, in academia, people who are parsing out Information for tenure because they, you know, the currency is publications. I, I see that as, as a great limiter, in my opinion, especially in the the field of neuroscience. And with us having access to large data sets, there's practically no limit to what we'll be capable of doing with it.
4: Yeah, it seems like maybe one of the limits in academia too is the um, the need to be territorial and not share data, right. and that's not. That's, I mean, there's a little bit of ego involved, but it's sure, but less the ego and more the institution, that mm-hmm. if people give up their data, they give up the chance to actually exactly. have any job security. I
2: remember when I first found EEG research a few, uh, a few years ago, um, I, you know I, I, my background's in fMRI. He's like, do you know anything about EEG? I said, I don't know, give me a couple weeks and we'll find out. And I went looking for data and could not find any data. I just could not find any open source data. And I thought that was just such a tragedy. That, and, and I see this changing over the next decade where 12-year-old kids are out there are going to be sharing their brain data. Like, here, this is what it looked like when I played Minecraft this week, and they're going, to, they're going to put it up on servers, and they're going to be looking at it in a way that we just never before thought possible.
5: So quick quick response to that. Um, uh, so one of the things I'm, I'm noticing a trend of is, you know, as individuals have more access to media or interactions or devices that kind of speak to them at that moment in time, we all become more individualized. We become more uh, unique. We, 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 can, we can read stuff that is just kind of for our niche. I mean, look at this conference, right? And, and it's just going to go hyper, you know, we know that. So things labels like ADHD, let's say, um, which is a description of a pattern, you know, we're going to have so much data that we'll be able to, like, really fragment that out to, like, uh, Greater, greater accuracy and greater differentiation from other people, and as a result, I think it's going to be—it's going to have a lot to do with what intention you put into it. Why are you going after what? What is like this, the content or the substance or the, the what you're going after that that dictates how this technology affects your evolution, evolves you, evolves your biology, evolves your consciousness. It's going to be like. How you're using it, how you're taking it. And so, intent is important.
1: <laughs> awesome. So, my question is about um, in the research you've done and the experiences you've had, have you noticed a difference between um, people who have gotten there really fast through the technologies versus getting there the slow way? Um, the kind of analogy that I'm seeing in the technologies you guys have described is the biofeedback devices seem like they could be a really quick way to get you to a concentration state. And I haven't done psilocybin, but I can, from your description of it, it makes it sound like a way to supercharge yourself to like an open awareness state. Um, and kind of thinking of, of, medi- of a meditation bifurcated in those two things, and obviously they work together, but wondering like people that have used the technologies that you're describing um have you seen a difference in people that have kind of gotten to those states really fast versus people who have done it over hours and hours and hours like the old way of sitting for however long um and the last thing I'll ask is i guess the like if you do concentration practice for hours and hours and hours all this kind of psychological stuff comes up um and will that happen if you do like get to the same concentration state you would have gotten after 10 minutes of whatever awesome technology gets you there
2: I think I think that's a great question i just recently had a, a, a dear friend of mine come on to the Lucid Space Project, and he does a lot with binaural beats, and I'm I had not; i not real big into entrainment. I, I'm very cautious about what we do to the brain. So something like a motive, it's a completely non-invasive, uh, it's an observation and measurement tool. And being a very conservative neuroscientist, I think that we should be very cautious as we move forward about what sort of interventions we're doing with the brain, because we don't have any long-term research with it yet. But this friend of mine, as soon as, um, as, soon as he got the EPOC, and was able to look and track his own metrics on relaxation, he was able to just immediately, he was just exhilarated by the entire prospect of having a real-time metric to be able to say, this is good. All right, I can do this. I can track this. So I I don't have any long-term yet, uh, but um, I'm excited to see how that's going to progress because these kind of biofeedbacks have been around for years, decades now, right? And -hmm. it's just now getting to a point where the technology is miniaturized enough and affordable enough that we're going to be seeing mass adoption. So you know, check, check back in in three years.
4: <laughs> yeah, I can answer for psilocybin. Um, what if I told you that there was a way to go from your home, safe, familiar, habitual, with all of its normal baggage, your life, and go to a totally fantastic paradise like Pandora. Have you guys seen Avatar? And... The one path involved a very kind of specific map and you would have friends along the way and it would feel sometimes like it was a little bit slow, but I could kind of promise you that for the most part, if you avoid this pitfall and that sewer grade and all this stuff, eventually you'd get there. I think a lot of people would choose that. Now, if I also told you you could go through the, like, the dark, spooky like Wizard of Oz monkey woods to get to the Wizard <laughs> of Oz, some people would choose that if they knew they could get there faster, and then once they got to the end, they could help other people get there faster. So psilocybin, you're not getting around the dark stuff. In, in many sessions that I have guided, people go straight into the darkest, scariest shadow parts of their being. Whatever you want to call karmic, intergenerational trauma, personal trauma, Um, but it it accelerates that process too. So, what I've seen some people struggle with for decades through meditation practice and therapy, again, psilocybin and other psychedelics can just kind of fast track that. And the fast isn't necessarily good, it can be, you know, clock time six hours, but it could feel like an eternity. You know, there's no getting around it. It's not a shortcut, but in terms of an actual biological life, it can be a shortcut. So that's maybe a point to clarify for people who haven't had personal experience, that it looks like it's a short amount of time, but it's kind of the same amount of work. It's the same amount of stuff that you're covering. The territory is the same.
2: I really love that analogy, by the way. Yeah. Can, I, can I jump off
3: that really quick? So um, on the topic of shortcut, I, I don't actually think that there's a such thing as a shortcut, as if we could somehow fool reality into, you know, some other way. Oh, I tricked you, reality. Um, <laughs> I do think that there is a continuum of skill, skillfulness in how we approach the path. And I think a less skillful approach can have its consequences or can take longer or be less efficient, these kinds of things. Um, But I think that we are in many ways uh, weighed down by a lot of preconceptions of what the path should be like how much we should work for it, how much we should suffer for it, how much of our shadow we need to deal with, how many hours we need to sit for, how bad our knees need to hurt. Um, These are things that hold us back as much as any other conceptualization of the the ultimate goal. And so um, do I think that the technologies have the potential to be um, harmful? Of course. This is not a panacea that can do no harm. These are things that need to be studied understood in a clinical context, and tested thoroughly. But do I think that our notions of shortcut and how long things can take are somehow set in stone? Absolutely not. I think those things are as malleable as human thought.
0: i just, I just add from, from the point of view of um, the traditional path itself. You know, there, there's, a, there's a recognition that some people go quickly through certain kinds of territory. Um, Some people have a natural proclivity to be able to focus and concentrate and investigate. And their experience is very much like a a kind of psychedelic journey without the psychedelics. And so I think we already have a lot of data points on how the traditions handle people going through certain territory really rapidly and it being um, disintegrating in a certain way and taking some time to, to kind of put the pieces back together and understand the significance of what's happened. Um, so I think we can, in some sense, pull from from that wisdom too, um, even as we look at these technologies. And um, and the other thing I'd, I'd point out, just from doing concentration practice, um, not a ton of it, but enough to know that what you described as you know, uh, concentration is a purification practice. Traditionally, it's it's, it's, it's it, it does bring up stuff. It churns these big uh, waves of difficulty up, and that's where you know. Certain practices are just so useful, like being able to turn toward those things and work with them skillfully and have you know, ways of processing that information and transmuting it into a kind of living wisdom. Um, and, and in some ways, I wonder if one possible response to that question about the shortcuts is that there is some part of this that it, you can't shortcut. It's just some, there's something that happens in a slow way a kind of development of character or a kind of wisdom that, that isn't really as much about these kind of altered states of consciousness. Um, Well, it's
4: like, it's kind of like a fractal, right? So it's like, you're going through these mini births and deaths and reincarnations and all this stuff. And eventually it's kind of like, there are these bigger cycles and within the big cycles, there are small ones. And I think that it's like people have to kind of come around to certain things a number of times before the kind of the cycle keeps like... Spinning.
5: A very
0: big number of times in some of our cases.
4: <laughs> like, oh, right, I remember. I'm never going to forget. Oh, right, I, I remember. remember. I've never, remember. you know, it's like this constant remembering.
0: So even if we sped up cer- certain things, what I'm hearing is, you know, there's still, still there's still the process. De- delusion is being endless. You know, maybe we when have it, uh, some new delusions. To... Actually, I
4: wanna I wanna share with you guys one of the best quotes from one of the most vilified psychedelic enthusiasts, Timothy Leary, from back in the '60s. Someone asked him why he kept taking so many drugs all the way until he died. He was actually in his hospital bed with cancer, broadcasting what drugs he was taking on that day, and basically like bra- bragging about how he was doing all this stuff that was so taboo. Still, right before he died. And someone was like, well, if you figured it all out, if these are like illuminating tools, why did you keep taking them? And he said, as it turns out, the archives of the human mind are infinite. <laughs> Delusions are endless. I still um, vow to end them or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I, think, I think the archives of the mind, I, that was one of my fascinations in my 20s was, you know, when can we download consciousness? And they told me this was going to be delivered in 10 years. And so I was like, well, where's my download, man? I, won't, I, need, I need an extra hard drive so I could go back and reference. What Einstein said, never memorize anything you can go look up. So I would really like a recording of all this stuff so I could go back over my day and be like, oh, I really like that or that was really good. And so uh, that's kind of why I came back into, came into the, the field. I was like, well, how do we fix
4: this problem? Wait, I also have a question for Nima. I'm trying not to, like, move away from my mic here as I ask you. <laughs> <So it's> like, <laughs> um, with the breath. For me, it took like 10 years of sitting concentration practice on the breath before the breath became this like totally amazing, sacred portal into existence. And so I would love for you to answer that question about the breath, that like, does it have to be slow? Can it be fast? Like this whole thing about pace with the breath, because like the breath adapts to what we're ready for, which I think is just super cool. It'll, it'll wait.
5: Mm. I, uh, I've worked with a lot of people that have never meditated ever, but they're dancers, they are cooks, they are athletes, and they 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 be with their breath all the time, and so and they don't they don't know it as a conceptual thing, an intellectual thing. They that's just it's very it's part of their life the way our feet are. Um, so I. I don't think that there's a goal about it. And I don't think that there's a, a speed thing to it. I, I, I'm with you. I had a similar experience of, of, of sitting, but I I also swam as a kid, and I felt like that actually was a big part of why. Yeah, I was,
4: it was a runner. Yeah.
5: yeah, yeah, and and if you do anything where you really do that, you, you have intimate awareness of it. Um, so, yeah.
6: I wanted to ask again about the data uh, stuff that comes out of this because I have this thing in my pocket that um, you know gives me access to all sorts of information. But more than that, it knows where I am, how fast I'm moving, and all sorts of other things that I'm probably forgetting that it knows. Um, and then you're coming out with uh, basically something that helps uh, helps track the breath. You've got the you know. A, a Portable EEG machine, basically. How much is is a hospital portable hospital EEG? Twenty thousand dollars. Right, and that's probably the base model.
2: Right, I mean, and this is a hundred times more affordable.
6: Right, and, and then um, you know the, the in a hospital the the stuff to track your pulse, oxygen, and all that stuff. Sure. Probably similar prices, sort of things. Yeah. You know, we're talking about these things that are not only big um, in the hospitals. You know, still about as tall as you know a regular person, and they've got. Um, all sorts of wires, and you can't go anywhere with them. Not only that, but in a lot of you know that data just goes off somewhere. It's very obtrusive. It's locked up. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, what do you see in in terms of the convergence of things like this thing that can tell how fast I'm moving, sure. where, where I am in the world, and that sort of thing? How high? I, how high I am? Not that how high I am, but you know, you never know <laughs> um, where you are in Boulder. Um, <laughs> you know something that can track in breath something that can kind of like you know track mindways yeah. these are all things that you know that is not just data on their own like you're saying you're saying a significantly True. large data set True. but all of a sudden you get
2: Contextual that price information. point
6: coming down
2: yeah we're looking at a mass adoption
6: about it's a, and when that happens yeah you know what is that sort of what is you know what do you feel is the potential oh, of massive. that um of that sort of convergence or singularity of that, of sure, that technology.
2: It's, it's funny that you bring up the singularity because I, I've heard a lot about this, and it's, it's a good buzzword. I think that what we're seeing during this convergence, take, for instance, hospitals. You go in when there's a problem. You've had a seizure. We look at. We have a lot of data on unhealthy brains. But there's not a lot of data on normal, everyday, healthy lives. And what we're going to see over the next decade is this integration of all these different technologies, all these different wearable devices, and all of this different data. And I believe that we're going to have an opportunity to take, to be empowered to understand our own brains and our own cognitive and mental health and our own physical health, our own nutrition. And I think it, it instead of a sick care system, we'll, we'll actually be able to have a health, you know, take care of ourselves and be healthier.
3: And... I could throw an extension to that. I think that um, what all of these various self-tracking and wearable technologies represent are really forms of technology-assisted self-awareness. They are all um, reflecting back to us some aspect of this existence that we're in, and that loop is tightening and tightening and tightening, from something like a a tracker that monitors you, and at the end of the week, you look at some chart or graph of what you did during that week, to something even closer to your body, like the breath tracker, which is actually looking in real time at your breath. And as these things close in and close in and close in, to in this moment, you are seeing a complete reflection of that, which is you're basically coming to a singularity of sorts, but it's almost like synonymous with this present moment experience but it's augmented by reality and so in a sense perhaps what all is this is pointing to or the ideal vision of the singularity is actually an ultimate singular experience that arrives at this present moment experience
2: i think we're going to see a lot less fear as that happens too a
4: lot less fear yeah fear's the big one Uh, Yeah, just think about the things that you're scared of and how many of those things would go away if there was no past and no future. And what
2: if we were all automatically to share all of those things together so that we could all understand exactly how fearful you are and why and what it was about? I think. (laughs) (laughs) I I,
5: I was going to say that I think that it's going to reinforce and tell us a lot of things that we already know, but like running is good for your health and eat this way and like all this stuff and have great social relationships and love is really important. We all know all these things. They're not going to do it for us. I guess maybe there will be an implant that literally does it for us (laughs) and then what's the point of being alive? um, They're going to tell us a lot of things that we know. And so in my view, the technologies that I'm excited about are ones that help us live the way we want to live and not just give us the information because the information is already there. It's like... It's like enough with the information, in a way. You, know? you see that coming
6: out of um, out of some some of the stuff that, goes, and that information. Do You think the information will help us get to that point, or encourage
5: that point. I Absolutely. well, it may motivate. It may help motivate us, but that's like saying, like, you know, will will the, the latest study that tells us that getting enough physical activity and lowering our stress is going to lower our risk for heart disease and cancer. It's like. Does the latest study help? I mean, yeah, it does help in a way. You're just kind of pile it on, but it's it's like
2: I, you know. I think that what you're going to see is a more social aspect of this data and information, a sharing of it, to where you know people love you know people love talking about themselves, and there's nothing wrong with that. We love reflecting on who we are as people, and I think that that data and that information, our ability to be able to combine and share that, will be a huge motivator. It'll be a huge momentum.
5: I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's necessary that it motivates us i think it's it's again like it, in a lot it's kind of like when you look at facebook is it always motivating to look at facebook sometimes it's motivating sometimes yeah. it's it's demotivating and often it's like Distract. i'm watching someone else's life experience and i know what I, I i understand that i know that if i do x then y will happen and 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 again it comes back to okay well what how important is it for me what like um how important do I think this really is, you know, put my money where my mouth is and, and, like, look at someone in the eye or tell them that I know that if I make eye contact, it's better for our relationship, you know, type different things.
4: What's this, uh, the term borrowed consciousness? So borrowed consciousness is when either information or someone's story or some enlightenment um, pointing out instruction from a teacher, all of a sudden that becomes the thing rather than what it's pointing to. And, yeah, I think I get what you're saying, that this amount of information can become in itself a path for delusion. Because right. if it pulls people more out of their own direct experience, it's just another distraction. Mm-hmm. But I, exactly. I, don't, I don't get that what you're pointing to is something in the, like, in extreme. It's always with awareness. Gee. And maybe ethics, we've got to figure out the ethical piece maybe before any of it, which I humans have that. never figured out the ethical piece. <laughs> so it's like... Well, I, think,
2: I, I think we need to be mindful of it as we move forward. Because there are so many potential potential dangers with it, ways it can privacy issues, uh, just so many different
7: aspects. Yeah.
0: Cool, thank you. Uh, we'll take uh, another question.
7: One thing you guys <laughs> mentioned was the uh, possibility of so-called technodelics to avoid some of the social stigma that might have accumulated for psychedelics. And I guess this is kind of for a motive specifically with J- Jago specifically, but. Is that does that seem like it's the case or does it seem like like as a business the decisions that a motive makes are still constrained by a lot of the same social taboos and stigmas towards uh, different, uh, mental
6: states.
2: Well, you need to understand that, that a motive in its, of itself, I mean, it's a wonderful company. love the people that I work for, and I do know that, that I see the future of the technology there. But they are very much working within the limitations of, um, you know, of their society. And, and what you know, who are the people that are going to adopt these technologies? How are they going to use them? Unfortunately, as a product company, they are somewhat separated. They're buff, you know, um, protected from that sort of problem in that they, they provide you with the tool. And what you do with the tool from there is up to you. Um, I'd like to gather
8: your, your perspectives. I know it's a big topic, but if briefly you could touch on the role that addiction would play in approaching the path to enlightenment in a skillful way. And I think something that I'm excited for with the proliferation of you know brain data is to see that there are indeed healthy addictions. Um, you, know, you could, I think, there's a blurring distinction between habit and addiction. Uh, there's been, been some interesting research at Duke. You know, 40% of our brain activity is just acting out of habit. I could be addicted to going to the gym. Yep. That's just a habit. Yep. But I could be addicted to crack. Yep. That's an addiction. It's 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 the reward
2: centers. Oh, I apologize. Please.
8: And no, just just to kind of restate the question: Is um, what do you believe would be the the role? of addiction in approaching the path to enlightenment in in, in a skillful way?
2: I think that's an excellent question. I was actually just talking with someone about this over the past couple of weeks. It's all about reward centers. We as human beings become addicted to anything that makes us happy and and activates all of those lower evolutionary structures in the brain. Are our needs being met? Uh, Is the food we're eating? And a lot of it's genetic. There's a lot of different interplay that's going on from a lot of different influences. It's not any one thing. So genetic predispositions. Um, what parts uh, our body really need? Is some people I don't need a lot of sugar personally. A lot of people love sugar. Um, I like fatty foods. My body type, you know, probably evolutionarily speaking, loved to, you know, loved meat back in the day. You know, but um, at the same time, I'm kind of transitioning into vegetarianism right now because I, I love my body and want it to be healthy. I think that the things that we get addicted to, um, I, I, the whole term addict, the whole addiction term might need to be re- revised at this point.
4: Yeah, a different term that um, coming from, it's funny, the psilocybin work was and is being done in a substance abuse research center. So it's like there's this really good drug that's being studied in this kind of under this umbrella of, quote, bad drugs. But as you pointed out with alcohol, it's like a spectrum. And some one of the terms that we've used is dependence, not just us, the whole field of, of studying substances and how people relate to them. So you can ask this about anything you use. How much am I free to use it or not use it? Or how much does it dictate my choices? And you can kind of answer that dependency question about meditation, about how much you need to see your teacher or guru, about how much you need to see your therapist, about how much you need to work. Um, The nice thing about psychedelics is they're not naturally addictive, so they don't trigger any of the natural reward pathways and dopamine. Um, it's a question for LSD. LSD is kind of its like own beast. And for so I'm DMT. Not even... the,
2: the molecule, yeah. the specific molecules are somewhat of an issue.
4: But the natural organic uh, mushrooms and ayahuasca, which is an Amazonian brew, um, they don't really seem to trigger the normal kind of uh, dependency and um, mm-hmm. craving and kind of seeking behavior that a lot of other uh, classic drugs do. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least physiologically they're safer. Yeah. And they can still trigger psychological dependence You know, you see this vision of a world free of suffering and you being completely interconnected and in the present moment with no problems, and then you come back, and the real world is happily waiting for you to re-enter, and it hasn't changed that much. And it kind of takes a lot of other practices to remember, what's the difference between those two states? How do I bridge them? And I've seen people become addicted to psychedelics. Um, There is always that possibility in human behavior. You see something, you want it. And you go after it.
2: And I believe we found we found some genetic markers associated with with high level of addiction. But technically, you you have a dependency for water. You're addicted to water, if I'm not mistaken. Right? I think all of us are.
4: <laughs> or
7: air. <laughs> air, yeah. Thank you. Um, so I really like that there are a few different types of technology represented here today. There, there's all the. Different things they were working on to, to connect people with technology and their own brains, and and also using some of the medicinal uh, methods. Um, what I'm wondering about, for to hear from um, any of you that can come up popcorn style, or even from the the meditative and contemplative traditions, is is there a key breakthrough that you think is necessary? That if we had that breakthrough, man, this stuff would just work right now. It'd be a killer app, be as big as Facebook today. And my. Uh, um, Presupposition right now is that there's not that breakthrough there yet, that there's still something necessary before it becomes big. I feel like if you kind of put it back in time, it feels a little bit like 1993, like there wasn't really a good graphical web browser. There's like the beta of Mosaic and kind of didn't load the images really well. Um, that, and if I were to guess which one, it is feedback, which is uh, as fast as possible and as present as possible through your daily experience as it can be. So if you could have something which could give you feedback that could be on you the entire time you are um, going throughout your day, then that could take you further toward whatever states you want to get to, whether it's more concentrated states or more more aware states. And it could translate very, very quickly into real life. And there isn't anything exactly like that. There are things which give you the feedback, and you kind of look at it a couple hours later, a couple minutes later. And um, I would say even with the medicinal paths, a lot of people take that um, awareness and they compartmentalize like, Oh, I did that over there. That was great over there that I had that. Well, now I'm in my office and with, you know, with my wife or kids or whatever. And it's, it's different. And also with the contemplative traditions, you sit on a pillow and then you go back into your life. Um, and you don't even get feedback from your teacher and most of the traditions, except stuff like the pointing out way where they do give you in a few minutes and social noting, which kind of folk promoted over here. Um, so, I think feedback is big, but is there something else you can think of that if, if that breakthrough happened, this stuff would just explode and we'd have uh, widespread adoption? Um, well, I, I, I,
2: uh, I don't think there's any one thing that's going to trigger the mass adoption. I see that uh, multiple, th- mul- multiple things coming into play, right? I mean, this is, as this technology has evolved and gotten cheaper and smarter and faster, it's, uh, it's going to take a lot of different things. No one app is going to make it click. No one technology is going to necessarily be the, the key. We're seeing a natural, organic adoption of, this, of these technologies. And I think that's wonderful and healthy. The more information we have, it, but whether there are going to come problems, of course. But
1: You I had
4: think... that key that you showed us at lunch, so it was like the cosmic existential Shh. key. I'm not supposed to tell anybody. Gosh, <laughs> Catherine? Shoot. The
3: problem is, I can't find the lock. <laughs>
4: oh. <laughs> All right, guys, you got to help us find the lock. Um, I'm going to make a little <laughs> pitch here against the drug war. Sorry, it's a little political, but right now the only reason that it is um, that access to psychedelic medicine is not happening on a larger scale is because of the drug classification so psilocybin mushrooms grow naturally they're safe they've been used for thousands of years medicinally in a religious context and they're classified along with every other drug of abuse in the highest category so schedule one which means no medicinal use and high addictive potential both of which are just false yeah in a truly free world no none of these drugs would be illegal they would all be freely available, and we would figure out the way in society that we want to help people who have problems with dependence and addiction. And we'd figure out ways to keep each other safe so that people who decide to take one drug aren't, aren't harming someone else, especially children. Um, as a society, we're not ready to ha- tackle those kind of big questions. Or maybe we are, and maybe that's kind of where things are moving. I mean, we're in a state that now has cannabis
2: Maybe for we're doing anyone, it now. Yeah.
4: Pretty much for anyone. I mean, that's like, I'm not even a fan of cannabis, and I think that's cool. Like, I mean, it's, just never underestimate how much things can change very quickly with a change in the legal structure and a change in public opinion about things. So if we decide that the suffering in depression, suicide, post-traumatic stress, terminal illness, if that becomes unacceptable, we can just change it. It's easy. We just change it. That's it.
2: Just do it. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> no, You're right. And I think us having a conversation about it, an open discussion about it, is, is one of the key efforts in the right direction. I'll give you two, <laughs> two answers.
3: Um, first, just jumping off of Catherine, is that, for example, if there were legal clinics that were very tightly structured with an extraordinary amount of research and experience backing them up, that could provide people with a... Um, really deeply supported and effective psychedelic experience that could provide a real meaningful transformation for that person, um, that would be huge. Um, So that said, that's the specific example of my real answer, which is that I think the holy grail is to be able to produce um, meaningful, significant, lasting change Mm -hmm. in the way that people feel. And um, when technology is able, the first technology that can do that in a significant way, that's really accessible. Will I think spread like wildfire? Something
7: that makes you feel better, not just while you're using it, but some kind of lasting effect. Exactly. That you afterwards, yeah. and you're like, I feel better because I put this thing. On. I think <laughs> to
3: understand what kind of effect I'm talking about, look at what we are aiming for here with contemplative practice, and when you can build a technology that can have that same effect, that same result, without any crazy downside, um, that will be huge.
2: Monumental.
5: Okay, um, so why was Facebook so popular? It doesn't make people feel good, necessarily, all the time. In fact, a lot of the studies show that people feel depressed after they check Facebook, but it's super popular. Same with email. makes us super anxious. Um, Yeah, you're going to check your mail right now, I bet. Um, Uh, so I think that I agree with what you're saying. Um, amusement parks make people feel good. They're really popular and you know, also is alcohol. Um, but to support the human experience, no matter what it looks like, no matter where people are at and that changes over time. Uh, that's kind of what Facebook is. It's like, it's like, it's a, it's a container space for whatever you want to put in it. And for, yeah.
7: You guys are both giving different answers and I just want to highlight that. But if I notice what you're saying you're talking about something that makes people feel better, actually makes their lives more positive afterwards you're saying what's necessary I mean a, with the assumption that there will be something in that technology that makes them also better off is the crack component Yes yeah. so crack component it doesn't matter People might not even want it to feel better.
5: Um, well hold on sorry yeah. just <laughs> finish let me finish what I'm saying and then you, and then you can tell me yeah. so so I think that the, the The thing about this container space uh, that is social, that helps people kind of like share their experience because we are such social beings, is that it has to communicate like what I was feeling and experiencing and what I did to to do that so that it's repeatable by somebody else. So somebody else can say like, so in Facebook, when I go check Facebook, people are always like, I went on this trip and look how cool I am because I'm in this exotic place. I went into this crazy yoga pose because look how, you know, it's like these exotic, you know, positive and sometimes negative experiences that are repeatable by me but aren't instantly repeatable. Like I have to like do something to get there and then so there's like, so, but, so that but for state of mind or, 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 or altered state or experiential and more experiential dimension would be I, I think the kind of Facebook equivalent Of what you're talking about, so I don't think it's positive and negative. It's positive for one person; it's it's negative that the other person experiences it negatively because that's that's part of human nature. But it's social and it ties us all together in that in that village. And,
3: And and I would say that it is possible in this moment to experience complete, total acceptance and surrender to what is, regardless of the context, regardless of what is showing up regardless of the physical pain in our body, of the social interactions that we're having. That is life, and that happens. But beneath that, around that, underneath that, including that, however you want to say it, there is the potential, a fundamental capacity of the human mind to experience a profound sense of of well-being. And so, um, for me, the ultimate technology would um, uh, catalyze that or open the door to that and really what happens in terms of external context or situation, I don't don't know, anything's possible. Yeah,
4: it's, it's kind of both, right? So ideally, you would be able to throw yourself into any situation and feel completely at ease and free. But in the meantime, you kind of, there are all these ways that we help each other get there. And... I guess for me, a real revolution would be the lack of judgment that we have toward other people's paths. And it, like, it even comes out in our little conversation here about alcohol versus psychedelics. We each have our judgments about what's an okay path. Um, maybe the key that's waiting is if we take some of the awareness aw- away from like our own situation and kind of look out and say like, what do the people around me need? Like, how can I be of service? It's such a simple Buddhist kind of ethical thing is service and most of us don't do it or we kind of do it in these like weird ways that are still self-serving. So, I think that like the original kind of Christians and uh, and Buddhist, you know, kind of monks that would take care of people and that's all they do and they'd beg for food. Maybe they had something there. And I haven't I haven't figured that piece out, but I, maybe there's a piece about service and community that um, well that that's goes part of the key.
2: That gets back to the path of the bodhisattva. Um trying to help as many people on the planet as possible. I think that that well, and, and somewhat maybe that's self-serving. For me, it releases all the endorphins in my brain and makes me happy as a person when I help people. But
0: and enlightened self-interest. <laughs> <And> self-interest. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Luke. It's great. great. Yeah. Um, so I just want to check in. We've got one one question left. That's the great. man's been standing here for a long time. <laughs> it. How come? All right. All right. Let's do it.
9: Oh man, this better be the best question ever. No pressure. It will be. (laughs) So it will be a tricky one and a short one. I'm asking names. Um, I'm working for Atra Innovations, and it's an accelerator for breakthrough innovations. So we, for instance, build applications on Oculus Drift for technology aided meditation based on sacred geometry. And then we work together, and we would like to understand this phenomena between. EEG signals, altered mental states and technology, and combine this with quantum biology and quantum physics. So my question is that if I am going to Amazon next, who are your favorite open-minded quantum physics researcher who can talk about human consciousness, quantum physics and EEG in the same sentence?
2: That's a really good question. Um, I, will I'll get you a list later. I'll get you a list. I'll have to go, I'll have to go look into it. But I was, I had the most enlightening conversation when I was working with the Tibetan monks about, um, they wanted to know how is it possible that this eight year old kid shows up to the monastery and is able to knock on the door and say, may I please be shown back to my room? Thank you very much. And I could tell when someone lies. I am very, very good at detecting deception. And, <laughs> I knew that he was very serious. This was very, a very open and honest question from a beautiful little monk, and he wanted to know. So we kind of went off, we we kind of went off on discussing the intersection between genetics, the hippocampus, and the potential for quantum physics to interact in a way that, that we just have not fully understood yet. And it's obvious that there's something going on. The whole reason Hans Berger created EEG, now this is, could be wrong. This is what I read on Wikipedia, was because <laughs> <laughs> this could be wrong. Um, so please double check this, don't take this as gospel but um, is that he had a near-death experience. He got ran over by a carriage, and at the exact same moment, about 2,000 miles away, his sister sent him a telegram and said, oh, my God, I fear something terrible has happened. Are you okay? And he was so profoundly affected. He was a researcher at the Max Planck at the time, and he was so profoundly affected by that experience that he created electroencephalography. What we know today, now in practice, 100 years later. So it's it's and, and I loved your talk, by the way, talking about some of these what may be considered fringe and whatnot. But I believe what we're seeing is an intersection of knowledge and creativity on a scale that has never before been possible, thanks to modern technology and communication. And that we're absolutely going to understand that in a, in a much uh, in a much welcomed way, in my opinion.
4: Did you say you were going to the Amazon?
9: Yeah. So so basically, I'm asking names on who are the current. Uh, even even practi- practitioners of scientism. So who who would be t- uh, writers or key figures on quantum physics? Uh, who are writing? Uh, I'm, I'm buying books on Amazon. Not I'm not going to Ayakasha on Amazon. Oh, oh uh, Amazon. I so
2: were, I the Amazon forest. Yeah, I yeah,
9: thought yeah, you yeah. meant
4: you were Spain going to room. the jungle. <laughs> uh, you wanted yeah, names of shamans. <laughs> <laughs> I,
9: like, I, I, I might like, if nice. you come with me. <laughs> I will. I will be going instantly. So if you if you will be my <laughs> two there's guide. A,
4: there's a conference
2: <laughs> coming up next week. Um, What's the name of that? No, Science
3: and Non-Duality. No, no, the 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 one Mind and Life. Oh, right, there's also the... one. The the the, Dalai
2: Lama had gathered together a whole bunch of scientists, and this is one of the things I love about Buddhism. Two weeks. It's in two weeks, the Mind and Life one? It's not
3: next weekend. Next weekend is Science and Non-Duality, which is my answer to you. Go to that (laughs) conference. (laughs) You
2: probably meet a lot of
3: people. Huh? In San Jose. Uh, San Jose, yeah. yeah. That's where all the quantum EEG consciousness... Convergence, uh, as much as you could ever hope for, is going to be there. You're
9: reading my mind. Next week, I'm in California. Oh, perfect. Okay, so
3: <laughs> San, San Jose. There's also, FYI, going to be an exhibition for contemplative technology that I'm organizing at the yeah. conference. A little plug. So if we'll both be in
2: San Jose, Jose next, next week. <laughs> if you want to get and to then go. the week oh, after that, and then the week after that. Yeah.
9: So, t- uh, great. It will be more drinking with you.
2: Okay. <laughs> we had a lot of fun last oh, time. And
3: one na- one, oh, come talk to me after. I have lots of names for you. But one <laughs> person you. is, check out Julia Mossbridge. So, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
2: Let's go. That was well worth the wait, I think. <laughs> not, not <you.
5: laughs>
0: I hope this is interesting. Uh, it certainly was to me. Thank you guys so much for for taking the time and um, I hope this is the beginning you know of a conversation um, rather than I hope 10 years we can come back and actually check in and see see what's happened. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.